Section 30 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 20. 1582-1587, Part 1. The disposition of Elizabeth was originally deficient in benevolence and sympathy, and prone to suspicion, pride, and anger, and we observe with pain in the progress of her history how much the influences to which her high station and the peculiar circumstances of her reign invariably exposed her, tended in various modes to exasperate these radical evils of her nature. The extravagant flattery administered to her daily and hourly was of most pernicious effect. It not only fostered in her an absurd excess of personal vanity, but what was worse, by filling her with exaggerated notions both of her own wisdom and of her sovereign power and prerogative, it contributed to render her rule more stern and despotic, and her mind on many points incapable of sober counsel. This effect was remarked by one of her clergy, who in a sermon preached in her presence, had the boldness to tell her that she who had been meek as lamb was become an untamable heifer, for which reproof he was in his turn reprehended by her majesty on his quitting the pulpit as, quote, an overconfident man who dishonoured his sovereign, end quote. The decay of her beauty was an unwelcome truth which all the artifices of adulation were unable to hide from her secret consciousness, since she could never behold her image in a mirror during the latter years of her life without transports of impotent anger. And this circumstance contributed not a little to sour her temper, while it rendered the young and lovely the chosen objects of her malignity. On this head the following striking anecdote is furnished by Sir John Harrington. Quote, she did oft ask the ladies around her chamber if they loved to think of marriage, and the wise ones did conceal well their liking hereto, as knowing the Queen's judgment in this matter. Sir Matthew Arundel's fair cousin, not knowing so deeply as her fellows, was asked one day hereof, and simply said she had thought much about marriage, if her father did consent to the man she loved. "'You seem honest in faith,' said the Queen. "'I will sue for you to your father.' The damsel was not displeased hereat, and when Sir Robert came to court, the Queen asked him hereon, and pressed his consenting, if the match was discreet. Sir Robert, much astonished at this news, said he never heard his daughter had liking to any man, and wanted to gain knowledge of her affection, but would give free consent to what was most pleasing to her highness will and advice. "'Then I will do the rest,' saith the Queen. The lady was called in, and the Queen told her that her father had given his free consent. "'Then,' replied the lady, "'I shall be happy and please your grace.' "'So thou shalt, but not to be a fool and marry. I have his consent given to me, and I vow thou shalt never get it into thy possession. So go to thy business. I see thou art a bold one to own thy foolishness so readily.'" The perils of many kinds, from open and secret enemies, by which Elizabeth had found herself environed since her unwise and unauthorized detention of the Queen of Scots, aggravated the mistrustfulness of her nature, and the severities which fear and anger led her to exercise against that portion of her subjects who still adhered to the ancient faith, increased its harshness. It is true that since the fulmination of the papal anathema, the zealots of this church had kept no measures with respect to her either in their words, their writings, or their actions. Plans of insurrection, and even of assassination, were frequently revolved in their councils, but is often disappointed by the extraordinary vigilance and sagacity of her ministers, while the courage evinced by herself under these circumstances of severe probation was truly admirable. Bacon relates that, quote, the council once represented to her the danger in which she stood by the continual conspiracies against her life, 
and acquainted her that a man was lately taken who stood ready in a very dangerous and suspicious manner to do the deed and they showed her the weapon wherewith he thought to have acted it and therefore they advised her that she should go less abroad to take the air weakly attended as she used but the queen answered that she had rather be dead than put in custody Ireland, says Naunton, caused her more vexation than anything else. The expense of it pinched her, the ill success of her officers wearied her, and in that service she grew hard to please. She also arrived at a settled persuasion that the extreme of severity was safer than that of indulgence, an opinion which, being communicated to her officers and ministers, was the occasion, especially in Ireland, of many a cruel and arbitrary act. When angry, she observed little moderation in the expression of her feelings in the private letters even of cecil whom she treated on the whole with more consideration than any other person we find not unfrequent mention of the harsh words which he had to endure from her sometimes as he says on occasions when he appeared to himself deserving rather of thanks than of censure the earl of shrewsbury often complains to his correspondence of her captious and irascible temper and we find walsingham taking pains to console sir henry sidney under some manifestations of her displeasure by the assurance that they had proceeded only from one of those transient gusts of passion for which she was accustomed to make sudden amends to her faithful servants by new and extraordinary tokens of her favour there was no branch of prerogative of which elizabeth was more tenacious than that which invested her with the sole and supreme direction of ecclesiastical affairs the persevering efforts therefore of the puritans to obtain various relaxations or alterations of the laws which she in her wisdom had lain down for the government of the church on failure of which they scrupled not to recall to her memory the strong denunciations of the jewish prophets against wicked and irreligious princes at once exasperated and alarmed her and led her to assume continually more and more of the incongruous and odious character of a protestant persecutor of protestants but the puritans themselves must have seemed guiltless in her eyes compared with a new sect the principles of which tending directly to the abrogation of all authority of the civil magistrate in spiritual concerns called forth about this time her indignation manifested by the utmost severity of penal infliction it was in the year fifteen eighty that robert brown having completed his studies in divinity at cambridge began to preach at norwich against the discipline and ceremonies of the church of england and to promulgate a scheme which he affirmed to be more conformable to the apostolical model according to his system each congregation of believers was to be regarded as a separate church possessing in itself full jurisdiction over its own concerns. The liberty of prophesying was to be indulged to all the brethren equally, and pastors were to be elected and dismissed at the pleasure of the majority, in whom he held that all power ought of right to reside. On account of these opinions, Brown was called before certain ecclesiastical commissioners, who imprisoned him for contumacy, but the interference of his relation Lord Burley procured his release, after which he repaired to Holland, where he founded several churches and published a book in defence of his system in which he strongly inculcated upon his disciples the duty of separating themselves from what he stated anti-christian churches for the sole offence of distributing this work two men were hanged in suffolk in fifteen eighty three to which extremity of punishment they were subjected as having impugned the queen's supremacy which was declared felony by a late statute now for the first time put in force against protestants brown himself after his return from holland was repeatedly imprisoned and but for the protection of his powerful kinsmen might probably have shared the fate of his two disciples at length the terror of a sentence of excommunication drove him to recant and joining the established church he soon obtained preferment 
but the brownest sect suffered little by the desertion of its founder whose private character was far from exemplary in spite of penal laws of persecution and even of ridicule and contempt it survived increased and eventually became the model on which the churches not only of the sect of independence but also of the two other denominations of english protestant dissenters remain at the present day constituted the death of archbishop grindal in fifteen eighty three afforded the queen the long-desired opportunity of elevating to the primacy a prelate not inclined to offend her like his predecessor by any remissness in putting in force the laws against puritans and other nonconformists she nominated to this high dignity whitgift bishop of worcester known to the polemics as the zealous antagonist of cartwright the puritan and further recommended to her majesty by his single life his talents for business whether secular or ecclesiastical his liberal and hospitable style of living and the numerous train of attendants which swelled the pomp of his appearance on occasions of state and ceremony when he even claimed to be served on the knee this promotion forms an important era in the ecclesiastical history of the reign of elizabeth but only a few circumstances more peculiarly illustrative of the sentiments and disposition of whitgift of the queen herself and of some of her principal counsellors can with propriety find a place in a work like the present to bring back the clergy to that exact uniformity with respect to doctrines rites and ceremonies from which the lenity of his predecessor had suffered them in many instances to recede appeared to the new primate the first and most essential duty of his office and the better to enforce obedience he eagerly demanded to be armed with that plenitude of power which her majesty as head of the church was authorized to delegate at her pleasure his request was granted with alacrity and the work of intolerance began subscriptions were now required of the whole clerical body to the supremacy to the book of common prayer to the articles of religion settled by the convocation of fifteen sixty in consequence of this first step alone so large a number of zealous preachers and able divines attached to the calvinistic model were suspended from their functions for non-compliance that the privy council took alarm and addressed a letter to the archbishop requesting a conference but he loftily reproved their interference in matters of this nature declaring himself amenable in the discharge of his functions to his sovereign alone in the following year he prevailed upon her majesty to appoint a second high commission court the members of which were authorized ex officio to administer interrogatories on oath in matters of faith an assumption of power not merely cruel and oppressive but absolutely illegal if we are to rely on beale clerk of the council an able and learned but somewhat intemperate partisan of the puritans who published on this occasion a work against the archbishop to enter into controversy was now no part of the plan of whitgift he held it as a maxim that it was safer and better for an established church to silence than to confute and a book of calvinistic discipline having issued from the cambridge press he procured a star chamber decree for lessening and limiting the number of presses for restraining any man from exercising the trade of a printer without a special license and for subjecting all works to the censorship of the archbishop or the bishop of london at the same time he vehemently declared that he would rather lie in prison all his life or die than grant any indulgence to puritans and he expressed his wonder as well as indignation that men high in place should countenance the factious portion of the clergy low and obscure individuals and not even considerable by their numbers against him the second person of the state the earl of leicester was not however to be intimidated from extending to these conscientious sufferers a protection which was in many instances effectual walsingham occasionally interceded in behalf of calvinistic preachers of eminence and sir francis knowles whose influence with the queen was considerable 
never failed to encounter the measures of the primate with warm, courageous, and persevering opposition. Even Burley, whom Whitgift had regarded as a friend and patron, and hoped to number among his partisans, could not forbear expressing to him on various occasions his serious disapprobation of the rigours now resorted to. Nor was he to be silenced by the plea of the archbishop that he acted entirely by the command of her majesty. On the contrary, as instances multiplied daily before his eyes of the tyranny and persecution exercised through the extraordinary powers of the ecclesiastical commission, on ministers of unblemished piety, and often of exemplary usefulness, his remonstrances assumed a bolder tone and more indignant character, as in the following instance. Quote, but when the said Lord Treasurer understood that two of these ministers, living in Cambridgeshire, whom for the good report of their modesty and peaceableness he had a little before recommended unto the archbishop's favour, were by the archbishop in commission sent to a register in London, to be strictly examined upon those four-and-twenty articles before mentioned, he was displeased, and reading over the articles himself, disliked them as running in a Romish style, and making no distinction of persons, which caused him to write in some earnestness to the archbishop, and in his letter he told him that he found these articles so curiously penned, so full of branches and circumstances, as he thought the inquisitors of Spain used not so many questions to comprehend and to trap their praise, and that this juridical and canonical sifting of poor ministers was not to edify and reform, and that in charity he thought they ought not to answer to all these nice points, except they were very notorious offenders in papistry or heresy, begging his grace to bear with that one fault, if it were so, that he had willed these ministers not to answer those articles, except their consciences might suffer them." The archbishop, in a long and laboured answer, expressed his surprise at his lordship's quote, vehement speeches end quote, against the administering of interrogatories, quote, seeing it was the extraordinary course in other courts, as in the Star Chamber, in the courts of the Marches, and in other places, end quote. and he advanced many arguments, or assertions, in defence of his proceedings, none of which proved satisfactory to the Lord Treasurer, as appeared by his reply. In the end, the archbishop found himself obliged to compromise this dispute, by engaging that in future the twenty-four articles should only be administered to students in divinity previously to their ordination, and not to ministers already settled in cures, unless they should have openly declared themselves against the church government by law established. But this instance of concession extorted by the urgency of Walsingham appears to have been a solitary one. The High Commission, with the Archbishop at its head, proceeded unrelentingly in the work of establishing conformity, and crushing with a strong hand all appeals to the sense of the public on controverted points of discipline or doctrine. The Queen, vehemently prepossessed with the idea that the opposers of episcopacy must ever be ill-affected also to monarchy, made no scruple of declaring, after some years' experience of the untamable spirit of the sect, that the Puritans were greater enemies of hers than the Papists, and in the midst of her greatest perils from the machinations of the latter sect, she seldom judged it necessary to conciliate by indulgence the attachment of the former. Several Calvinistic ministers, during the course of the reign, were subjected even to capital punishment on account of the scruples which they entertained, respecting the lawfulness of acknowledging the Queen's supremacy. On the other hand, the attempts of Sir Francis Knowles to inspire Her Majesty with jealousy of the designs of the Archbishop, by whom some advances were made towards claiming for the Episcopal order an authority by divine right, independently of the appointment of the head of the Church, failed entirely of success. No ecclesiastic had ever been able to acquire so great an ascendancy over the mind of Elizabeth as Whitgift. There was a conformity in their views, and in some points a sympathy in their characters, which seemed to have secured to the primate in all his undertakings 
the sanction and approval of his sovereign. His favour continued unimpaired to the latest hour of her life. It was from his lips that she desired to receive the final consolations of religion, and regret for her loss from the apprehension of unwelcome changes in the ecclesiastical establishment under the auspices of her successor, is believed to have contributed to the attack which carried off the archbishop within a year after the decease of his gracious and lamented mistress. Elizabeth took an important though secret part in the struggles for power among the Scottish nobles of opposite factions by which that kingdom was now agitated during several years. It has been suspected, but seems scarcely probable, that she was concerned in the conspiracy of the Earl of Gowry for seizing the person of the young king. She certainly, however, interposed afterwards to mitigate his just anger against the participators in that dark design. On the whole, she was generally enabled to gain all the influence in the court of Scotland which she found necessary to her ends, for James could always be intimidated, and his minions most frequently bribed or cajoled. She regarded it, however, as an object of some consequence to gain an accurate knowledge of the character and capacity of her young kinsman, from one on whom she could rely, and for this purpose she prevailed on Walsingham, notwithstanding his age and infirmities, to undertake an embassy into Scotland, of which the ostensible objects were so trifling that its real purpose became perfectly evident to the more sagacious of James's counsellors. Melville confesses that it cost him prodigious pains to equip the king, at short notice, with so much of artificial dignity and borrowed wisdom as might enable him to pass successfully through the ordeal of Walsingham's examination. But his labour was not thrown away, for James, who really possessed considerable quickness of parts and a competent share of book-learning, played with such plausibility the part assigned him that even this sagacious statesman is believed to have returned impressed with a higher opinion of his abilities than any part of his after-conduct was found to warrant. Her increasing apprehensions from the hostility of the King of Spain caused Elizabeth to cultivate with added zeal the friendship of the northern powers of Europe, and in 1582 she sent the garter to the King of Denmark as a pledge of amity, making at the same time a fruitless endeavour to obtain for English merchant ships some remission of the duties newly levied by the Danish sovereign on the passage of the Sound. It was the prudent practice of Her Majesty to entrust these embassies of compliment to young noblemen lately come into possession of their estates, who, for her favour and their own honour, were willing to discharge them in a splendid manner at their private expense. The Danish mission was the price which she exacted from Peregrine Bertie, lately called up to the House of Peers as Lord Willoughby of Eresby, in right of his mother, for her reluctant and ungracious recognition of his undeniable title to this dignity. On the occurrence of this first mention of a high-spirited nobleman, afterwards celebrated for a brilliant valour which rendered him the idol of popular fame, the remarkable circumstances of his birth and parentage must not be omitted. His mother, only daughter and heir of the ninth Lord Willoughby by a Spanish lady of high birth, who had been maid of honour to Queen Catherine of Aragon, was first the ward, and afterwards the third wife of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, by whom she had two sons, formerly mentioned as victims to the sweating-sickness. Few ladies of that age chose long to continue in the unprotected state of widowhood, and the Duchess had already re-entered the matrimonial state with Richard Bertie, a person of obscure birth but liberal education, when the accession of Mary exposed her to all the cruelties and oppressions exercised without remorse by the popish persecutors of that reign upon such of their private enemies as they could accuse of being also the enemies of the Catholic Church. The Duchess, during the former reign, had drawn upon herself the bitter enmity of Gardiner by some imprudent and insulting manifestations of her abhorrence of his character and contempt for his religion, and she now learned with dismay that it was his intention to subject her to a strict interrogatory on the subject of her faith. Except apostasy, 
there was no other resource than the hazardous and painful one of voluntary banishment, and this she without hesitation adopted. Bertie first obtained license for quitting the country on some pretended business, and soon after the Duchess, attended only by two or three domestics, escaped by night with her infant daughter from her house in Barbican, and taking boat on the Thames, arrived at a port in Kent. Here she embarked, and through many perils, for stress of weather compelled her to put back into an English port, and the search was everywhere very strict, she reached at length a more hospitable shore, and rejoined her husband at Santon in the Duchy of Cleves. From this town, however, they were soon chased by the imminent apprehension of molestation from the Bishop of Arras. It was on an October evening that, followed only by two maidservants, on foot, through rain and mire and darkness, Bertie carrying a bundle, and the Duchess her child, the forlorn wanderers began their march for Vessel, one of the Hans towns, about four miles distant. On their arrival, their wild and wretched appearance, with the sword which Bertie carried, gave them in the eyes of the inhabitants so suspicious an appearance that no one would harbour them, and while her husband ran from inn to inn vainly imploring admittance, the afflicted duchess was compelled to betake herself to the shelter of a church porch, and there, in that misery and desolation and want of everything, was delivered of a child, to whom, in memory of the circumstance, she gave the name of Peregrine. Bertie, meantime, addressing himself in Latin to two young scholars whom he overheard speaking together in that language, obtained a direction to a Walloon minister, to whom the Duchess had formerly shown kindness in England. By his means such prompt and affectionate succour was administered as served to restore her to health, and here for some time they found rest for the sole of their foot. A fresh alarm then obliged them to remove into the dominions of the Palsgrave, where they had remained till the supplies which they had brought with them in money and jewels were nearly exhausted when a friend of the duchess's, having interested the king of Poland in their behalf, they fortunately received an invitation from this sovereign. Arriving in his country, after great hardships and imminent danger of their lives from the brutality of some soldiers on their way, a large demand was assigned them by their princely protector, on which they lived in great honour and tranquillity, till the happy accession of Elizabeth recalled them to their native land. Peregrine, Lord Willoughby, found many occasions of distinguishing himself in the wars of Flanders, where he rose to the rank of lieutenant-general. He was not less magnanimous than brave, and disdaining the servility of a court-life, is thought to have enjoyed on this account less of the Queen's favour than her admiration of military merit would otherwise have prompted her to bestow upon him. He died Governor of Berwick in 1601. His son was afterwards created Earl of Lindsay, and the title of Duke of Ancaster is now borne by his descendants. The King of Sweden, conducted to the brink of ruin by an unequal contest with the arms of Russia, sent in 1583 a solemn embassy to the Queen of England to entreat her to mediate a peace for him. This good work, in which she cheerfully engaged, was speedily brought to a happy issue, and the Tsar seized the opportunity of the negotiations to press for the conclusion of that league offensive and defensive with England, which he had formerly proposed in vain. The objection that such an alliance was inconsistent with the laws of nations, since it might engage the Queen to commit hostilities on princes against whom she had never declared war, made, as might be expected, little impression on this barbarian, and Elizabeth had considerable difficulty in escaping from the intimate embrace of his proffered friendship to the cool civilities of a commercial treaty. Another perplexing circumstance occurred. The Tsar had set his heart upon an English wife. Some say he ventured to address the Queen herself. But however this might be, she was about to gratify his wish by sending him for a bride a lady of royal blood, sister of the Earl of Huntingdon, when the information which she received of the unlimited privilege of divorce exercised by his Muscovite Majesty 
deterred her from completing her project. She was in consequence obliged to excuse the failure on the ground of the delicate health of the young lady, the reluctance of her brother to part with her, and what must have filled the despot with astonishment, her own inability to dispose of her female subjects in marriage against the consent of their own relations. About this time died the Earl of Sussex. In him the Queen was deprived of a faithful and honourable counsellor and an affectionate kinsman. Leicester lost the antagonist whom he most dreaded, and the nobility one of its principal ornaments. Dying childless, his next brother succeeded him, in whom the race ended, for Egremond Ratcliffe, his youngest brother, had already completed his disastrous destiny. This unfortunate gentleman, it will be remembered, was rendered a fugitive and an outlaw by the part which he had taken, at a very early age, in the Northern Rebellion. For several years he led a forlorn and rambling life, sometimes in Flanders, sometimes in Spain, deriving his sole support from an ill-paid pension, and occasional donations of Philip II, and often enduring extremities of poverty and hardship. Wearied with so many sufferings in a desperate cause, he then employed all his endeavours to make his peace at home, and impatient at length of the suspense which he endured, he took the step of returning to England at all hazards, and throwing himself on the compassion of Lord Burley. The treasurer, touched with his misery and his expressions of penitence, interceded with the Queen for his pardon. But she, on some fresh occasion of suspicion, caused him to be advised to steal out of the kingdom again, and neglecting this intimation, he was committed to the Tower. After some months he was released, possibly under a promise of attempting some extraordinary piece of service to his country, and was sent back to Flanders, where he was soon after apprehended on a charge of conspiring against the life of Don John of Austria. Some say, and some deny, that he confessed his guilt, and accused the English ministry of a participation in the design. However this might be, he perished by the hand of public justice, a lamentable victim to the guilty violence of the popish faction which first beguiled his inexperience to the relentless policy of Elizabeth, which forbade the return of offenders perhaps not incorrigible, and to the desperation which gaining dominion over his mind had subverted all its moral principles. Ireland had been as usual the scene of much danger and disturbance. In 1582 an attempt was made by the King of Spain to incite the Catholic inhabitants to a general rebellion, by throwing on the coast a small body of troops seconded by a very considerable sum of money, and attended by a number of priests prepared to preach up his title to the sovereignty of the island in virtue of the papal donation. But the vigorous measures of Arthur Lord Grey the deputy, by holding the Irish in check, rendered this effort abortive. The Spaniards, unable to penetrate into the country, raised a fort near the place of their landing, which they hoped to be able to hold out till the arrival of reinforcements. They obstinately refused the terms of surrender first offered them by the deputy, and the fort being afterwards taken by assault, the whole garrison, with the exception of the officers, was put to the sword, an act of cruelty which the deputy is said to have commanded with tears, in obedience to the decision of a court-martial from which he could not venture to depart, and which Elizabeth publicly reprobated, perhaps without internally condemning. The Earl of Desmond, who on the arrival of the Spanish troops had risen in arms against the government with all the power he could muster, was accepted from the general pardon granted to other Irish insurgents and thus remaining by necessity in a state of rebellion, gave for some time considerable disquiet, if not alarm, to the English government. But his resources of every kind gradually falling off, he was hunted about through bogs and forests, from one fastness or lurking-place to another, enduring every kind of privation and hardship, and often foiling his pursuers by hair-breadth scapes. It is even related that he and his countess on one occasion, being roused from their bed in the middle of the night, found no other mode of concealment 
than that of wading up to their necks in the river which bathed the walls of their retreat at length a small party of soldiers having entered by surprise a solitary cabin they there found one old man sitting alone to whom their brutal leader gave a blow with his sword which nearly cut off his arm and another on the side of his head on which he cried out quote, i am the earl of desmond end quote. the name was no protection for perceiving that he bled fast and was unable to march the ruthless soldier bidding him prepare for instant death struck off his head and brought it away as a trophy leaving the mangled trunk to the chance of interment by any faithful follower of the house of fitzgerald who might venture from his hiding-place to explore the fate of his chief the head was sent to england as a present to the queen and placed by her command on london bridge from this time the beginning of fifteen eighty three ireland enjoyed a short respite from scenes of violence and blood under the vigorous yet humane administration of sir john perrow the new deputy the petty warfare of this turbulent province amid the many and great evils of various kinds which it brought forth was productive however of some contingent advantage to the queen's affairs by serving as a school of military discipline to many an officer of merit whose abilities she afterwards found occasion to employ in more important enterprises to check the power of spain ireland was in particular the scene of several of the early exploits of that brilliant and extraordinary genius walter raleigh and it was out of his service in this country that an occasion arose for his appearing before her majesty which he had the talent and dexterity so to improve as to make it the origin of all his favour and advancement raleigh was the poor younger brother of a decayed but ancient family in devonshire his education at oxford was yet incomplete when the ardour of his disposition impelled him to join a gallant band of one hundred volunteers led by his relation henry champernon in 1569 to the aid of the french protestants here he served a six years apprenticeship to the art of war after which returning to his own country he gave himself for a while to the more tranquil pursuits of literature for quote, both minervas end quote, claimed him as their own in 1578 he resumed his arms under general norris commander of the english forces in the netherlands the next year ambitious of a new kind of glory he accompanied that gallant navigator sir humphrey gilbert his half-brother in a voyage to newfoundland this expedition proving unfortunate he obtained in fifteen eighty a captain's commission in the irish service and recommended by his vigour and capacity rose to be governor of cork he was the officer appointed to carry into effect the bloody sentence passed upon the spanish garrison a cruel service but one which the military duty of obedience rendered matter of indispensable obligation a quarrel with lord grey put a stop to his promotion in ireland and on his following this nobleman to england their difference was brought to a hearing before the privy council when the great talents and uncommon flow of eloquence exhibited by raleigh in pleading his own cause by raising the admiration of all present proved the means of introducing him to the presence of the queen his comely person fine address and prompt proficiency in the arts of a courtier did all the rest and he rapidly rose to such a height of royal favour as to inspire with jealousy even him who had long stood foremost in the good graces of his sovereign it is recorded of raleigh during the early days of his court attendance when a few handsome suits of clothes formed almost the sum total of his worldly wealth that as he was accompanying the queen in one of her daily walks during which she was fond of giving audience because she imagined that the open air produced a favourable effect on her complexion she arrived at a miry spot and stood in perplexity how to pass with an adroit presence of mind the courtier pulled off his rich plush cloak and threw it on the ground to serve her for a footcloth she accepted with pleasure an attention which flattered her and it was afterwards quaintly said that the spoiling of a cloak had gained him many good suits it was in ireland too that edmund spenser one of our first genuine poets 
whose rich and melodious strains will find delighted audience as long as inexhaustible fertility of invention truth fluency and vivacity of description copious learning and a pure amiable and heart-ennobling morality shall be prized among the students of english verse was now tuning his enchanting lyre and the ear of raleigh was the first to catch its strains this eminent person was probably of obscure parentage and slender means for it was as a sizer the lowest order of students that he was entered at cambridge but that his humble merit early attracted the notice of men of learning and virtue is apparent from his intimacy with stubbs already commemorated and from his friendship with that noted literary character gabriel harvey by whom he was introduced to the acquaintance of philip sidney his leaning towards puritanical principles clearly manifested by various passages in the shepherd's calendar had probably betrayed itself to his superiors at the university by his choice of associates or other circumstances previously to the publication of that piece and might possibly have some share in the disappointment of his hopes of a fellowship which occurred in fifteen seventy six quitting college on this occurrence he retired for some time into the north of england but the friendship of sydney drew him again from his solitude and it was at penshurst that he composed much of his shepherd's calendar published in fifteen seventy nine under the signature of emerito and dedicated to this generous patron of his muse the earl of leicester probably at his nephew's request sent spencer the same year on some commission to france and in the next he obtained the post of secretary to lord grey and attended him to ireland End of section thirty.